Look around in the sound On the ground, losing pounds Hey everybody, so this is Friends from the Future, I'm Joey Cahill, I'm talking to you from Paris, France, the heat, in the heat in the heart of the coronavirus epidemic. It is April 8th, Wednesday, 2020, and today on the program I'm going to be talking to Benji Rich, uh, guy I went to seven. I, I met Benji in 6th grade uh, when we went to Manhattan East together, junior high school in the upper uh, east side of Manhattan Public School, Magnet School. Met a lot of uh, great people there, some who I still keep in touch with, who have spread out across the planet. And uh, this is uh, that's going to be kind of the point of this um, podcast program thingamajing, uh, where I'm going to speak to different people, people I've met, uh, talked to, or really old good friends who I miss, who are in different places and are going to give me some insight as to what's going on around them, what they're up to, uh, and how they're seeing things uh, as we are moving through this whole cataclysmic event that we're dealing with. It's really hard in a, in a time of crisis to get good information. Um, or I think these days we all question our, the information that we come into contact with a lot more. So uh, I, I, you know, I don't know about you, but if, if a friend of mine in California tells me what it's like in California... You know, it's it's going to mean a lot more to me than when I read something in the L.A. Times. So that my idea was to actually speak to people directly and just, you know, see what things were like outside their window, out, out on the street, uh, that kind of stuff. And, you know, to, to, to put it up here and to kind of start talking about it that way. Um, at the same time, you know, I mean, in my own little experiences with this whole coronavirus thing, uh, I, I definitely became like a news junkie in the first in the first few days. I couldn't stop reading about what was happening everywhere. Uh, and, you know, the first few days, meaning the first few days, it became an urgent recognized problem in the country where I live because it was obviously that in plenty of other places before it, before it, it came directly to my attention and the attention of everyone else living in this country. So it's kind of fascinating because that moment of awakening went country by country. While we were all freaking out here in France, suddenly, you know, uh, in Italy, it's sort of like, well, welcome to the party. And, you know, in China, they're sort of, you know, looking at us, shaking their heads like, well, you didn't see this coming. And while we, we were freaking out here in France, in America, you know, it, it was this kind of fragmented, you know, state by state decision of whether to take it seriously at all. And even the places that were taking it seriously were way behind w what we were experiencing. So it was this strange kind of viral telephone game. I think there's a kind of different national uh, characters that are being, that are emerging and you're seeing the way that people deal with things really sort of depends on what that country's like in the first place, what it, you know, how it deals with health and kind of the just general character of the country and you know it reminds me i was talking to my friend uh, radek uh, in prague uh who helped out with some uh some prototypes that we got to the french health authorities of a czech uh, face mask that was being made with a filter a p3 filter to filter out the virus more about that later 
And uh, my friend Radek was talking about, you know, different countries' reactions, and he was laughing about how the Czechs had no problem sewing all these little masks and quickly adopting the idea of everyone having a mask and everybody getting really into, you know, like being at home and, and with their, you know, little hobby making these masks in this very kind of homemade artisan-type uh, way, which is very Czech. And he was laughing about, you know, the French reaction to, wait, wait, what? I have to wear my underwear on my face? So, yeah, Benji, Benji Rich, uh, his last name is spelled Reich, but I, I got Americanized into Rich, I think, somewhere along the way. Uh, he's been living in Hanoi, Vietnam, uh, for over 20 years, I believe. Uh, and he's had many adventures in business, uh, photography, and now fashion over there, where he's uh, now an integral part of the fashion brand uh, Kilomet 109. Kilomet 109, which is mainly the work of his wife, Tao. Uh, she's the driving force, the designer behind it. Uh, there'll be a link in the description of this podcast so you can check it out. I think it's uh, really, really fascinating stuff that they're doing. Uh, they post videos of how all the things are made and then the types of clothes that they make out of them. So, you know, we'll have, we'll have a second part uh, with Benji uh, soon to talk more about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on his business and his wife's business because they have a shop, they have an online business, they create, they, they produce all of these clothes with a team and how they've had to adapt with it. As far as I understand, they're, they're doing okay for now. Uh, so it was interesting to hear all about the different ways that the Vietnamese have dealt with the situation because they're so close to China. And as a, as a former New Yorker, uh, born in New York, to hear Benji's you know, reactions to what's going on in America and how New York is dealing with the situation. Check it out. This is uh, Friends from the Future, number one, with Benji Rich. Look around in the sound, on the ground, losing pounds. So Benji. So Benji. Ben. Yes. Yes, Benji. Ben Rich. Benji Rich. Yes. So we went to junior high school together, right? We sure did. Manhattan East. Manhattan East on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. That's correct. And now where do you live? I live in Hanoi, Vietnam. And that's where you are right now? That's where I am right now. That's where I've been living for the past 22 years. That's pretty crazy. It is crazy, isn't it? And if I remember correctly, you were not the greatest student of languages. I was not a very good student of language, no. Um, I grew up in my household. My, I, I was actually born in France. And, ah, that's, and, uh, that's what that... I knew there was a, some sort of weird French thing. You knew there was a French angle, right? So I was born in Paris. Uh, my parents lived there for about nine years. Where were you born and, in Paris? Where were you born in Paris? Where was I born exactly? You mean which hospital? I don't know. Yeah. Or where were they living? They were living on uh, Boulevard Raspail. Hey, hey, Boulevard Raspail. Is that right near you? No, but it's not far. <laughs> I think it was number 262. Like I've been to the place where I was born into. Or, I'm going. Or, you know, my first house. I'm going. I'm taking photos. I have to check. I have to check. No, I have photos of it. So I have to check the number. I think it's 200 something. Uh, so I'd have to... To check the, on the All right, number. Check it out. I'll, I'll print yes. up a plaque and I'll, yes. I'll glue it to the, oh, please to the wall. Do. Please do. Benji Rich was born here. So I was born there. My parents uh, spoke French. They're both from the States, but they uh, spoke French. But 
pretty much only when they didn't want me or my brother to understand what they were saying at the dinner table. Ah, okay. Um, but I always had a really good accent, but I was a terrible student. Just in general, I was a terrible student. Yeah, I seem to remember and you didn't. You never had. You didn't like carry books or any or, or anything in no. your backpack. You had you had like a gigantic backpack, but nothing in it. Nothing in it. Yes, that sounds about right. I think I had old lunches in there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like a selection of the week's lunch. I had a selection of yeah, of like ham and cheese sandwiches. So when you're a bad, when you're not good at uh, in school. The subjects that you usually do the worst in are language and math. That was from my experience. Because like English and history and subjects like that, if you have any sort of uh, background and current affairs and whatnot, you can bullshit your way through them. Mm-hmm. But with foreign languages and with math, you really can't just sort of do it from the seat of your pants. But so and now you speak, you speak uh, really Viet- Vietnamese fluently? I speak Vietnamese, yeah, absolutely fluently, perfectly. I think the problem was, looking back on middle school and high school, the problem was that I just wasn't really motivated to learn. Yeah, sure. No, who was? Nobody, I mean, I I used to get zeros on Spanish tests. I I think I once got, yeah, I don't know if I got a zero, but I got like eight. I got consecutive zeros. The uh, first Spanish test that we took in sixth grade in Miss Chalemi's class. Miss Chalemi. Ms. Litsky. Shout or out. I think it was made Miss Litsky. Shout out to Miss Chalemi. I don't think she spoke Spanish. <laughs> I don't think she spoke English either. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, the first test. <laughs> the first test, their question was, how do you say goodbye in Spanish? And I remember Eric and I looking at each other. Eric was a, a a classmate of ours. Now, now he's a, he teaches at Harvard, right? Yeah, now he's the director of a big program at Harvard. And he uh, and actually, funnily enough, the, the program he's the director of trains teachers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you looked at each um, other. We looked at each other, and we both, you know, I tried to ask, you know, what do you say? How do you say goodbye in Spanish? And he looked at me with this completely blank look on his face. And so I ended up, we both ended up leaving it blank. And then when we went over and she said it was adios, we were like, oh, my God. It was really bad because that was, you know, that was probably the only word that we actually knew. So when but, when, uh, when did you start to care? I think it was care. just the pressure of taking the test. When did you start to care about trying to learn a language? I, when I wanted to impress young ladies. I think that was probably uh, had a role in it. Young ladies in Vietnam or just young ladies? Young ladies in Vietnam. So I came here. I came here uh, for the first time in 1997. I was doing a junior year abroad in Hanoi, mm-hmm. and um, so where I was you like now 20, live? 2021 at the time, where I now live. And yeah, I was motivated. I had this group of friends. I was in this dorm. Back then, there weren't many foreigners living in Vietnam at that time, um, and uh, the there were some students. Um, who were studying at the university that I was studying in, in Hanoi. And they, the way that the Vietnamese government divided the students in the different dormitories was the dormitory I was in was for students from uh, Western Europe and basically capitalist countries. So, you know, France, the UK, uh, Australia, uh-huh. the United States, South Korea. Then there was the dorm next to ours was for students from Laos and Cambodia. That was the most bootleg of all this, the, 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 uh, in terms of the facilities, it was the most bootleg <laughs> of all the, of all the, uh, dormitories. 
And then there was another dormitory, a third dormitory, which was for students from communist countries, so from North Korea, Iraq, uh, uh, Russia, Ukraine at that time. Uh, so basically countries that were considered friends of Vietnam, Cuba. Right. Uh, and so we were sort of split up like that. And uh, yeah, I was just motivated. I really I had all these had this big group of friends from all over the world, from Japan and uh, Korea and and russia and most of them didn't speak english very well so we all sort of spoke really bad vietnamese, vietnamese. to each other yeah yeah but but it worked because yeah. you you didn't have anybody judging you who spoke the language fluently we all you had a vocabulary of maybe like 50 words right and we just used them to hang out for hours and hours and talk and get fucked up and yeah we had a great time so and, that kind yeah, of got suddenly as a as a young single uh, uh, heterosexual male, you had you had a lot more motivation than sitting in Miss Chalemi's class. <laughs> Definitely, and I knew you were going to steer me in this direction, so I came prepared. <laughs> how'd, you know, how'd you know I was going to steer you in this direction? So, I just had a feeling. I, this is coming out naturally. So, <laughs> so um, uh, yeah. Well, let's let, so let's move a little bit uh, uh towards the present. So, sure. so now, because I was just looking, I was looking at uh, Kilomet 109. Am I saying that right? Sort of. It's called Kilomet, Kilomet 109. Kilomet 109. Yep. So yep. what is Kilomet 109? So Kilomet 109 is the fashion brand that uh, my wife started and I joined her a couple of years ago. Um, and it is a sustainable fashion brand. We make um, all of our own fabrics from scratch and then do sort of super contemporary uh, design from that. So it, you so cut out a little super, super content, contemporary design based on sustainable yeah. uh, production. Sustainable methods, methods, productions. So when I say sustainable, I mean this. is We, we are actually, we work with a number of different uh, artisan communities in rural areas of Vietnam, quite remote areas of Vietnam. I, I was to, looking. I was. I just was, you know, preparing, doing my little homework, yep, and looked at research. the the Facebook feed, and I saw yep. some crazy shit going on in there. There was like a, <laughs> exactly. a machine that seemed to be vomiting out all of these this, this stuff <laughs> that then became somehow became a really cool charcoal colored uh, yes. jacket yes. of some kind. So yeah, so let me tell you. So we we do we work with these communities, these different artisan communities, and each community has different traditional techniques for making test textiles uh, or making natural dyes. So that includes everything from cotton to hemp to silk, um, and then from the on the dye side, it includes. Um, and also linen, and on the dye side it includes uh, ebony fruit, which makes this charcoal, this charcoal black that you're describing. Um, there's an, uh, also indigo, uh, and there's um, uh, a number of other tree barks that we use to make uh, red color. There's a kind of you'll you'll like this one, uh, Joey. There's a, a bug called the lac bug, which is used to make shellac, you know, uh, shellac yeah. and, uh, varnish. Yeah, and that's that's a resin. That comes from a resin produced from a, a particular kind of bug that eats a kind of uh, tree bark, and so they produce this resin that makes this beautiful red color, red dye. 
Wow, is uh, that, that is that what's used on the that, that first um, photo that's on the Facebook thing of a, a woman sitting in this this kind of sci-fi out um, outfit in a oh, in a no 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 in a chair? Not that particular piece. Not that particular piece. That that particular piece was from that's made from silk from hundred uh, percent natural silk. But the dye on that one isn't natural. Okay. Um, I could show you. Well, you can see I'll it see on, it. on I'll see Facebook it. feeds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, beautiful reds and uh, and pinks and yellows. Um, so we make so we're working with these communities to make all of this stuff from scratch. Right. And so um, so how does it work? Do you do you walk off into the mountains with your wife and like conv- convince a bunch of people like living yes. in remote areas to like make cool shit with you? No. So basically, these these communities have been doing it for you know hundreds of years um but they haven't been making things like what you guys make no no exactly so what they have what they have is like the the they have the sort of traditional craftsmanship right whether it be uh the um uh the you know the the growing of the of the indigo or the um uh growing of the cotton or hemp those are all and and weaving and sort of natural dyeing they have all those techniques um and each community has different techniques that they use um but what we've done and it's this was a really long process is over about 10 or 12 years um we've uh, introduced um We've worked with these communities to do uh, tests and, and to do a lot of playing around on colors, uh, so to use different types of fabrics, uh, to create different kinds of colors, um, to make uh, the textiles that we use, and also different types of batik drawings. We also use batik mm-hmm. uh, with beeswax beeswax drawing on the fabric. Are they are, um, they, so are these? Can, are these people ever yeah. sort of like confused or, or taken aback by your suggestions? Like, well, what if you try like, Absolutely. you know, we'd like Absolutely. to make this kind of thing out of it. And they'd be like, well, why would you do that? We've never done that before. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's absolutely exactly right. So there's a lot of failures that have to happen, but you ha- that's why it takes a long time because you have to earn uh, a level of trust. And that trust is not just, uh, financial, but that, I mean, that's part of it, right? The trust that you're going to always buy even the mistakes that they make, um, and that it's worthwhile for them to do. But that trust is also more importantly, is really a creative trust because it's a really a a collaborative process. Um, and so that trust had to be earned through, not just through going up there a lot of times and ordering a lot of different kinds of fabrics and saying, you do this, you do that. It had to come from my wife, and this is really a credit to her. She spent a lot of time uh, in these communities working directly and learning how to do uh, 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 all of the steps in the process herself. So she basically became a dye master herself. So she's not just uh, – she has the knowledge uh, and the, 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 the level of craftsmanship to be able to do all the dyeing herself. But then she works with these communities to, to tweak certain aspects she knows the areas where the, you can put a little bit more of this or take away a little bit more of that um uh to create really interesting new color uh uh, uh palettes right so, so they can't doing that they can't like uh jerk her around or or uh, sometimes you know just be like well we don't want to do that she's like no you just you try it like this right well there was there was some resistance on a on a few different uh uh, uh, times where we did some uh, experiments and there was a bit of resistance. For example, that uh, was one time she made um, indigo uh, with this one community, and the, the indigo that they make is very, very dark blue. 
uh, almost like a black. Uh, wow, that like must be something. Blue. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful color. Um, and that's what they use in their um, their outfits that they wear, uh, their traditional outfits that they, that they mm -hmm. wear. Uh, but Tao wanted to do some experiments. My wife Tao wanted to do some experiments where she made a much lighter blue. So she dyed it for a, a shorter period of time. Um, and it created this really interesting effect on the fabric where it almost looked like light blue, actually like a, a, a Parisian sky with that in, in the late where you get that light thing, uh, with some clouds in the distance. So it had this sort of very, really beautiful effect. And the, the women who she was working with thought it looked really ugly because it didn't look <laughs> like the stuff that they had always produced. Right. Um, so it was unfamiliar. She took sort of... it, it was unfamiliar to them. So they don't have that sort of, uh, you know, think outside the box sort of what imagining what this could be. It's sort of like a repeated process. And is, is that and where so you she, come into the whole thing? Because like I can imagine that sometimes maybe, you know, like they're looking at it and she's and she's like, no, it looks like the Parisian sky. And and they're looking at it. They're like, we've never done this before. It's really <laughs> ugly. You don't know what you're talking about. And then she's like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Listen to my husband. And then this and then this Jewish kid from New York comes out speaking perfect I, I, I Vietnamese. And they're all just like, okay. I wish I wish I could say that I had that much to contribute to this process. <laughs> uh, maybe in the retelling of it, I should sort of I think, uh, add myself in yeah. more to the process. I think you should uh, do that. But the reality is, the reality is, is that um, it, it, what happened was she made she took that that fabric and turned it into something totally different. Made some clothes from it, uh, very contemporary fashion pieces from it. And she brought it back up to the communities for them to see, and they were blown away. Okay. Um, so let's so, so 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 let's go back to just so yeah, so then sure. you, you you learn to speak Vietnamese, you know, well enough to yes. to 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 have some fun with your friends on this course and everything, and then and eventually to to speak to Vietnamese women and one of and and so one of them, uh, what's her name? Tao. What's her name? Tao. Tao. So she becomes. So you you speak well enough that you. You convince her to become your wife, I assume, and uh, yes. and so can you talk just a, a, about uh, you know like meeting? I I was told that, that um, until not, not that long ago that foreigners couldn't marry Vietnamese women. Is that true? Um, I don't know when you meet when you say not so long ago. I mean, it was not like ten years ago, maybe. No, 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 no. You could marry. Um, I mean, I don't know when it was first allowed but like for example the u.s and vietnam normalized relations in 1994 bill clinton was under bill clinton's uh uh administration that they normalized relations with vietnam and i think after that time you could a vietnamese national could marry a foreign national but there was just a lot of hoops that you had to jump through but it wasn't easy to do to do the paperwork exactly and it wasn't I, yeah. easy so when i got married um because my wife is not from hanoi we had to go back to her hometown, which is lo located actually 109 kilometers from Hanoi. That's what the the 109 in Kilomet 109. Ah, comes okay. Um, kind of reminds uh, me of Fahrenheit 451. Exactly, but without the, the there's no burning going on. We're <laughs> growing. We're we're building something new. We're growing something new. We're not burning. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so. We had to go back to her her uh, hometown to do all the paperwork, and it was a bit of a nightmare. There were like a lot of, you know, had to pay a bunch of bribes to get the paperwork done. Uh, 
you'll like this, Joey. It was very um, uh, on the uh, the paperwork that we had to fill out. Uh, the official paperwork from from the uh, Justice uh, um, Department of Taibing Province, which is where my wife is from. The paper said uh, marriage registration uh, with a foreign factor. That's what it was saying. So you were a foreign factor. I was a foreign factor, exactly. <laughs> I've never been so proud. That you, you should. I think you should. Uh, you should do a trap album with that title called "Foreign Factor." It'll be big in Vietnam. I, I like that. <laughs> so what? Uh, what? So so did did uh, did your wife Tao? Did she think it was cute when you speak Vietnamese? Do, what do you speak together now? Um, when we're speaking to each other, yeah, uh, we speak. <laughs> you, when, when on those rare occasions. <laughs> on those rare occasions. <laughs> when we're not grinding our teeth. Um, yeah, so uh, what do we speak? We speak both. We speak both English and Vietnamese. It really depends. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, both of us are fluent in both languages, so it's really not... I mean, what do you do with your wife? Yeah, you, my you're, my you're wife's I would, my wife's English is better than my French. I would say my French is okay. you know perfectly serviceable and all that, but I make lots of mistakes that she doesn't because she actually studied it in a um, school environment before she hit the road, and I studied it on film sets on where I was the director, <laughs> um, and you know just eventually got the courage up to stop to stop responding to people who would speak English to me <laughs> um, right, here. Right. So, but I never really, st- I, I studied a little, uh, I couldn't ever afford good courses. So like I, the first person who taught me French was a, was a Polish girl. She was a student, um, I, a Czech guy. And that was good, right? That, that got you to, oh, yeah. to feel no. more comfortable. Oh, I could, without so that, up French too, right? Oh, without that, I couldn't have, I, I had, you know, like, I think you have to like sit down and have somebody who has some kind of pedagogical idea, you know, explain right. to you how a language works or else, or else you have to be some kind of genius. I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm okay with languages because I see it as a game and I, and it's kind of like a memory game in the beginning. Um, right. and, and it's just fun cause you, you have these direct results. Like you were saying, like you, you can just, you know, you say stuff and, and maybe it's in the wrong order or something. And magic but, happens. Yeah. And like, suddenly like you got a job, like you got a place to work, oh, yeah. you got a girlfriend, you have like a cool restaurant you like to go to. You have like all these different things happening and it's just because you made some kind of attempt and 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 i think absolutely yeah, it kind of that, that, that it, it, it's it's definitely one of the best things or if if not the best thing that i i did in my time here just because uh, on all different respects in terms of socially in terms of the the app you know the the worlds it opened up for me here um for jobs um i in my career i've done a number of different things in my time here really interesting jobs and uh, a lot of that was due to the fact particularly you know, 15, 20 years ago that I spoke the language so well um, that I was able to sort of be sort of the trusted conduit between, uh, um, you know, on a lot of interesting projects. Uh, and um, so it, it's been really great. Plus the fact that everywhere you go in Vietnam, people just appreciate that you're making an effort. Yeah. And when you speak really well, I mean, it got to the point where when you get to a certain level where it goes from a tremendous appreciation to people don't really know what to do with you. Yeah. Actually, they can become more guarded. Mm. I had that happen, particularly in in business settings. Um, 
where uh, some of the people that I was working with were, um, they didn't really quite know what to do with me or what to make of me because they were used to, they liked the idea of working with uh, in an international environment and working with uh, foreigners and having foreigners attempt to speak their language and have it be cute and all. But when you're like making presentations, formal presentations in Vietnamese, they don't kind of don't know um, it, it, it's not in their yeah, you know, normal way of dealing with things. So throws them kind of, off. Yeah, it sort of off, yeah. It kind of introduces yeah this this exotic element, which is usually kind of uh, yeah like fetishized or sort of oh isn't this fun? But then like when you have to yep. take it seriously, then yeah, then there's this whole other mindset of you know well, well what is he really thinking? What's happening when it becomes more serious? Exactly, and what's his motivation? And why does he speak so well? And why? Um, you know, I'm supposed to be uh, uh, very open and polite to foreigners, but yet now we're debating something in Vietnamese. And so, uh, you know, where I'm a little, I can, I normally can be a little bit more, uh, you know, naturally sort of uh, uh, maybe I'm on my turf, right? Right. For them, you know, yeah. they're on their turf and they could be, be maybe be a little bit more uh, aggressive or bully a little bit more, try to at least. Yeah. Uh, I, I also find a very different dynamic. Yeah. I, I also, I think there's always kind of a language tug of war in places where, where like, you know, probably a lot of people in Vietnam, Vietnam are depending, I don't know what's, what's the, what's the, the most spoken foreign language there? Is it English? English now. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so they, the younger people have a sense of it and that, that used to happen to me here all the time. Um, and you know, they, you meet somebody and they let you do some French and sort of see how it goes. And then they like flatten you with their, you know, Netflix English and, uh, right. all of, and, but, but then if you can actually hold your ground, uh, you know, that it's sort of like, well, we're in France, so let's speak French. <laughs> and, right. Right. Um, and that, but so it, I, I now just don't care. I, I, I let people speak whatever they want, but it used to bother me. Um, and in the same, Czech, same with yeah. me, I think a lot of people go through that similar thing. I had, the, I went to that same, same experience as you're describing and where it would be this ridiculous met, um, Tao, um, it would be this thing where, you know, she wanted to speak English. Um, and I, I realized pretty quickly with her because I really liked her that I, I, and I didn't want to fuck it up. Uh, so I felt, felt that it was better to just let her speak English um, to the point where she ran, she had trouble saying something or ran out of the vocabulary or something. And then if I, I said it in Vietnamese, then it was sort of more, it came naturally, it came up naturally, rather than this ridiculous scenario, which used to happen where one person, the Vietnamese person is trying to speak bad English and the, and the, the American guy is trying to speak really bad Vietnamese. Yeah. It's like, this doesn't make any sense at all. Um, uh, so it, it, it kind of, I guess you get to a certain point where you get, um, confident enough in your, in your language abilities. Plus you also have enough opportunities to speak the native language. Mm -hmm. You're, you can, um, you're not as, you don't make such a big deal out of it. If somebody really wants to speak English, then that's not a big deal. It's fine. Yeah. Just yeah. The flow. So listen, let's, let's, uh, talk a little bit about, cause one of the ideas here was to talk about what's happening right now. Uh, with the yep. coronavirus, COVID-19, uh, and all that. 
Uh, so, because we have some similarities in that you're from New York City, like me, yep. though I'm from Riverdale, let's say it, okay? Uh, yep. <laughs> and, um, uh, you're from you're from originally from the Upper West Side, is that right? Upper West Side of Manhattan, yes, indeed. Um, so I'm I'm from Riverdale in the Bronx, and most people say that's not the Bronx, but not the Bronx. I don't care. <laughs> I've moved it's past Riverdale. that conversation, even though I'm the one bringing it up. Anyway, you so you're from Manhattan. Uh, you got family there, um, older, younger. Uh, so I assume you're worried about that. I said I definitely am. Friends, family, and then you're in yep. Vietnam, and I find that each country is kind of reacting to this whole thing in their own way. That really sort of projects something about the character of the country, the government, indeed, and the yep. people. So yes. can you talk about those things a little bit? Okay, so. First keep on, it funny. on New York, oh, keep it funny. <laughs> yeah, it's hard, it's hard to man because it's such a heavy subject. Um, you know, for New York, it's it's pretty. Um, like you said, it, it's uh, you know watching the news every day and seeing. I think yesterday we're talking on uh, what is it, April eighth, April seventh. Uh, something like seven hundred and fifty people died in New York State yesterday, which is just unreal. Yeah. Uh, when you think about it. Though, don't you see also um, a lot of people putting stuff online like, yeah, but people die that many, you know, this many people die every day from this kind of stuff, you know. Of course. That kind of thing. Uh, yes, of course. You do see that. And I don't know what to think about that argument, though, about. because this is, you know, this is an extra added, extra added. block of death. Of course, it's a dumb argument. It's just an argument to do nothing. I, I mean, I've gotten so tired. I, I've tried, bent myself into intellectual not trying to understand the perspective of these sort of alternative ideas um, and, uh, and to try to give them the, uh, you know, at least a little bit of intellectual credence to sort of see, well, what, you know, where they come from. But it's really just, I think, a lot of nonsense. Um, and it's ideologically, um, uh, it's coming from an ideological point of rather than from a, a humanist point of view and so mm. well, what about um, can can you compare the you know like the what you see going on in new york and and you know maybe with your relatives or or in the news and then like the what's going on in hanoi sure sure so basically both cities right now in new york and hanoi both cities are on lockdown um but uh hanoi it, it's not a complete lockdown in the sense that you're able to go outside but they just recently instituted a two-week lockdown from a April first to April fifteenth. This is countrywide. Um, but you were and, you were pretty contained though before that. Like yes, the kids have been out of school for yeah, a while. Oh yeah, my kids have been out of school since uh, for this is the I think their eleventh week out of school. So right because January. there's a there's a border with China, right? So like this was so, yeah, early, so on. Vietnam, early on. Vietnam shares a border with China. Um, and has been, um, it shares one of our largest borders with China. And uh, there are also a lot of uh, Chinese uh, uh, migrant workers who live in Vietnam, also a lot of Chinese tourists who come to Vietnam, as well as Vietnamese students who are studying in China, uh, Vietnamese um, uh, students who are actually studying in Wuhan, and um, also a lot of just uh, uh, cross-border uh, trade that goes on every day. So they, we were very aware early on uh, of uh, what was going on in China, and it was it, it felt like something that um, could come here quickly. 
So the government was um, uh, basically shut things down from China pretty early on in terms of um, making sure that they were uh, checking people at the airports, um, closing down a lot of different border crossings, um, doing right, right. Um, I saw, I saw yeah. lots of stuff that the the, the government. It was really on. It seemed like people in Vietnam were very happy that the government seemed on top of things. Yes, and I think the reason that they had to be on top of things. There's a few different reasons. One, uh, they are. Um, you know, they, they really, as you're seeing, the U.S. does not have the resources to deal with something like this when it breaks out. And so you can imagine a country like, a developing country like Vietnam has even fewer resources in terms of medical resources to deal with a full-blown outbreak. So it's, it's, it's even more paramount that they're on top of things early. Right. They have to keep everybody away later. from the hospitals. Absolutely. Um, They've been doing um, what's called trace. Uh, what's it called? Trace. Um, I forget what it's called. There's a an um, an epidemiological word where they where they where they uh, trace where they basically all the cases, are, all the cases. Hmm. Um, and they've been doing that for the past three months. Which, as far so as right I can now, see, in America, all that's happening. All the only places doing that is the New York Times. Yeah. Exactly. And it's actually too late in the, in the States. You, once you get to a certain point, it doesn't make any difference. It's just so widespread that you can't try to chase every case. Right. Um, maybe if in the U.S. they get the numbers down, they can try to do that again so that mm -hmm. they don't have a second wave. Um, but they've so right now we're here on April 8th. And I think in terms of the number of positive cases, uh, t positive tests in Vietnam, there are 250 to this date. Uh -huh. with zero deaths and now, those are official those are official numbers so, so don't know, know if it's real, some people it, true. say that right exactly we don't know if it's exactly true or not uh, but from I, I have a lot of journalist friends here work for Reuters work for Bloomberg and from what they've been able to tell um, you know what, what they've been able to verify they seem to be uh, pretty true mm. um, so yeah and and oh, it's been I heard, very different. So people here, I heard, yep. I heard a friend of mine, Go another ahead. friend in Vietnam, but in a different. I forget which part she's in, but she's far from Hanoi. Um, she was telling me that they they went they come door to door to find out if you've had a visitor. Um, you know, if yeah. If, so that that's what this tracing thing is. So if you have, if you they have this way where you are marked. Um, if you test positive, you are considered F zero. And then anyone who came in contact with that person, they will uh, immediately come to um, quarantine that person, um, a forced quarantine of that person, and they will basically ask them everywhere that they've been, uh, every so like every restaurant you've been, every market you've been, every person you've come in contact with, what taxi you were dri you drove in, what grab car you were in. Um, and try to get the as many names and numbers of people that you could have potentially come in contact with. Those people are then considered F1 uh, because they're and and the government will follow up with them to test them to see if they're if they're positive. So the, then, there must be like a gigantic department following this. Yes. So they've basically mobilized a number of different um, basically apparatchiks. Uh, to 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 do all this work, whether it's the police 
it's a combination of the police to the fatherland front to the uh, to the you know uh, to nurses and 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 doctors. And so, what about what about what do you think about civil liberties and all that? Because that's the big question, you know, that people are asking about the surveillance techniques in order to really be on top of this. It seems like authoritarian countries, uh, or that have certain authoritarian tendencies, are actually doing better than places where there's a more of a democratic mindset where everybody can do whatever they want. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, you know, there that doesn't mean that there isn't some resistance to resistance here to some of the uh, um the authoritarian uh methods right um they haven't been as draconian as they were in in china but for example all what happened a, a lot of the cases vietnam was at about 30 or 40 positive cases until about two or three weeks ago so for the first two months that this outbreak happened we were only at about 30 to 50 cases here. But then there was this massive influx of Vietnamese students who were studying abroad. So basically, uh, the children of wealthy business people and party officials who've been studying in France, the UK, the United States, who saw what was happening in those countries. And had to come and, back. Yeah, and came back because they were, you know, wanted, they were scared or they wanted to be close to their parents or their parents wanted them back. And those a lot of the new cases have been brought back by those uh, from those students but those students had to upon arrival they basically had to go to these forced quarantines for two weeks uh, that were these uh, basically army barracks in in various uh, and and hospitals and empty empty schools right I saw um, that on the news right, lots of hotels right. and yeah. hotels and stuff like that where they had to be holed up for a couple of weeks and be tested regularly before they were freed and yeah, there were some complaints. Some some people blogged about it and said uh, one woman blogged about a way to avoid being uh, quarantined. But there was so much public shame that went with that, um, and that was uh, public shame that went with what? That and what? What do you mean with the public? Meaning shame? like that were people people on the you know on Facebook and on uh, Twitter and and Instagram and whatnot. Who were basically saying that this was, you know, really, really poor, bad behavior. This was nothing to be proud of, and that this is you do things for the community, not just for yourself. So I think that that, in terms of that sort of um, uh, a cultural aspect, is very uh, is much more uh, natural here versus the U.S., where there, there's still a strong sense of community in the U.S., but it's it's the idea is if I take care of myself that's enough for the community. And I don't like anybody telling me what to do. Um, and even, uh, I mean, I think, I think depending on where you live in the U.S., uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who don't even think that this is, that this is something or that, or know, that, that, that is crazy. Yeah. That this is some sort of, you know, um, government conspiracy or some hoax or yeah. something to a way, a way for the Democrats to, to, uh, 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 get socialism passed. Right. Get some more. I mean, that, that's what they think. There's yeah. that, and yeah. then there's also. I think that in general, you know, like so much about America, even if even if there there's all kinds of problems, and you know, you could there's obviously all the stuff about no no universal health care and and job security and all these kinds of ways in which other countries kind of take care of their citizens a little more. At the same time, I find that. America comfort is king. 
and and like absolutely so that's why everybody like walks around not used to being put out at all yeah nobody wants to like nobody's used to making that sort of effort and like i just i I find that you know growing up there so many ways it'd be like what you want me to do what no way i'm not doing that you know and it's just like ingrained in the culture maybe that's also a little bit more in new york I don't know. Well, and I don't think it's just in New York. I think it's also that the nature of this particular sacrifice that people are being asked to make, it's so unusual and foreign as a concept, this idea that I'm not just doing something to protect myself, but I'm doing it to protect this that is you, you um, cut out there you're, you you cut out for a sec you're doing something to protect yourself uh, you're not doing something just to protect yourself but what? Right. You're not just thing to protect yourself. Um, that's not enough. You have to be doing something also greater imagined community. So your actions or, or inactions uh, will affect other people, people that you know and also people that you don't know, but that you come in contact with. That sort of concept just doesn't really jive with what it means to be a freedom-loving, freedom God-fearing American. You know, yeah. I think and, um, and and just in in terms of I think that <clears throat> apart from like, you know, freedom loving, God fearing, which I'd say, you know, is something to describe, you know, we like if I hear that, I, I'm thinking about like people who might have voted for Trump, for example, or, you know, uh, but I think there's a larger uh, uh, description or just dis, dis, uh, descriptive about Americans that's just individual uh, individualism. And it's something that I think about here a lot because even though France is, you know, full of people who want to express themselves and be their own person and everything, they have a kind of underlying sense of more of a social connection because they have these social, uh, socialist, um, foundations in the, in the society with, you know, with this, with the school system, health, job, all the different types of security that you have that kind of make people feel like they're a part of something instead of just going out and you know the the kind of the the frontier aesthetic of like yes. I'm in my cabin yes. and fuck all y'all I have a gun, <laughs> and and you don't have yes. to have a gun or a cabin to have that in your head. Like I think I think when we grew up in New York City, we had that in our heads. You know. Yeah. No. No. I agree. Um, I mean, I think the the well, in in the cities, I won't just say it's New York. I think it's in in a lot of the cities, especially in in the sort of more professional neighborhoods where people are very educated, they've got good jobs, um, they're just very much uh, tied up in their career. Um, and that is, um, and, 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 and in feeding that career now, they're doing their part. That's their, the, the social. Um, Wait, you got to say that uh, last part again. That's you the got, way that they you gotta, you, You're cutting out. Sorry. Hear me now? Yeah, it's just that the internet's cutting out a bit. That last point, you should make it again. Now I don't hear you. Hello. Yeah, I hear you there. Okay, yeah, now I can hear you. Okay. Can you hear me? Yep, yeah. So make that last point again. Um, What was I saying? I was saying that... Um, Individual is where I... I don't know. I, I, yeah, I think that... Um, People, 
people, what you were talking about before, about people being used to these creature comforts and and going for self and doing, and, and as if that's somehow, that's a patriotic act. Um, and uh, it doesn't, that, 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 what you were saying before, that idea that we're not sort of interconnected, that lack of interconnectedness um, beyond your immediate, uh, you know, your immediate group of your family and friends or work colleagues or church, uh, but th that you're connected to something that's much bigger, a much larger project, um, is um, it's not something that you feel all the time because you don't, not everybody has to contribute to that. It's yeah. not... Uh, it's not part of the system that you contribute into. I mean, it is to a certain extent, but not to the degree that it is in, in Western Europe or that it is here in Vietnam. And don't you think that that's, I, to me, that's the sort of the, I don't like the expression silver lining. I don't, I hate how we sort of, I feel like that um, there are these expressions that, that come out more and more that people just reuse. Like, what's the takeaway? I hate it when people say the takeaway from a conversation. Right. But um, it's Chinese. It's um, Mushu chicken. That's the takeaway. <laughs> Mushu chicken is the fucking takeaway. Oh, uh, <laughs> whoa. So, so, but you know, the I do feel like that this whole thing, and I, so I really feel like that in the beginning, it's starting to fade. But that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to do this this podcast program, whatever the hell this is, um, is that I do think that it really is uh, that this whole thing there's something positive to be gleaned from it that 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 we are all a part of something together that we all that there's all kind there's some rather drastic changes that we can actually put into place to make the air better to think about you know uh, if all of these planes need to be circulating to you know that, that the the ecology is one thing but you know i just feel like that in so many countries, uh, this this crisis is highlighting that we've elected the wrong people, and that the priorities are completely ba backwards. Right. So, you know, do you think it does? Do, do you it feel does hopeful? allow. It does. I feel mixed. I oscillate back and forth between being optimistic and being pessimistic. I mean, I'm optimistic. Clearly, there is going to be a greater demand, uh, popular demand for those types of social programs that you've gotten that you're used to in in france and in western europe but that in the u.s have seemed elusive for so many years and you know we're um, used to it here but it's at the same time as being dismantled it's under threat I mean, you know exactly. Exactly. politicians like macron now they're every every time they go on tv they thank the health uh, system that they have systematically tried to dismantle exactly exactly so that on one side at least in the U in the context of the United States, where we're both from, I do feel hopeful that there's going to be uh, basically a lot of the things that uh, Bernie Sanders was calling for in his in his um, in his um, in his campaign. Now, whether he was the right messenger for that or not, that that remains to be seen. Clearly, he didn't. He lost. Um, he wasn't able to get the votes that he that he needed. Um, but I think there's the ideas, some of the ideas that he's been, that he was pushing for, like universal health care as a right, uh, like, you know, re, the, the needs of focusing on the needs of young people. Um, the fact that, that the older generation, basically the boomer generation has, has taken, taken, taken and benefited so much from the system, but it's been at the, in many ways at the, um, uh, 
you know, at the at the expense of of younger people um, who just don't have the opportunities that uh, that that older Americans had. I, I do feel hopeful that there's going to be a lot more momentum for those those types of discussion in the popular discourse, uh, as well as just people realizing that this is this system that we currently have is not sustainable. Um, now, on the other side, I also think there's going to be equal pressure to be to for you know isolationism to increase, for uh, xenophobia to increase, and we're already seeing that. On all of the the fact that there are more, um, the fact that the the virus, at least in the U.S., is um, is affecting different communities in 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 very different ways. Sure, I mean it's um, a, a, this sort of cataclysm that goes straight to vulnerable people. That's exactly, it, exactly. You can't, you can't. It's such an illustration, you know, of that. Yes, exactly, and it's class. It's both class and race, right? Uh, I mean, it's it's it skews more racial because of the fact that the working class in the cities are happen to be more black and brown people. Um, but I think if 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 um, we might see over the next few weeks that it really ravages the South as well, where there's a lot of these uh, same sort of um, uh, pre, you know, these conditions that people, health conditions uh, that people have that make them more vulnerable and the fact that they can't afford to stay home. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah that's the big thing. People who can't afford to stay thing, home. Yeah. That people can't afford to stay home. Now, the, 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 uh, so stay I home think and make gonna, dumb podcasts. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I, I feel both hopeful and, and, and scared. I mean, it's going to be, there's going to be forces pushing on both sides. I know you that's know? what you see. Cause as soon as you feel hopeful, then you're like, then you open the newspaper and it's like, Oh, there's all these incredibly evil people who are directly positioned to profit from this entire thing. Exactly. And to push a totally different agenda that you wouldn't think is possible. I mean, I, I'll use the analogy. It's, 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 it's not, I, I understand that this, that this um, pandemic is very, very different in its nature than September 11th was, where it was happened over a short period of time. Um, it wasn't, um, uh, they're just two, by their nature, very different events. But what, I, I think what's similar is that I remember in the immediate, while the, uh, September 11th was happening, I was in Hanoi at that time, um, but I was in obviously close contact with my friends and family who were in the States and in, in, you know, New York City. Zero in New York City, right. Um, where it was this sense, there was this sense of hopefulness. I had the sense of hopefulness initially that for the first time ever, or the first time since Pearl Harbor, basically, uh, Americans would understand what it's like to be these sort of innocent victims uh, caught up in some much bigger geopolitical uh, um, uh, 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 war, basically. Chess game. Um, yeah, chess game. Like what it feels like to be bombed. Yeah. Or some, uh, when, know, when it happens all the time in, in uh, when it so many all countries. All over the world. Right? From us, when, from, from the Americans. Right, exactly. How it feels, how it feels to be to be dislocated, how it feels to be, uh, how people come together, um, how you know, and and we took that. So that was that was how I felt initially, and then to see how quickly it morphed from that into this jingoistic um, sort of 
I, I think a lot of fake patriotism um, and how it was co-opted by a lot of different actors uh, uh, who, who profited from that, it's particularly the defense industry who profited mightily from that. And have yeah, uh, continued to do so till the, to, up to, right. to today. To this day and how we spent that, 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 that love that we got, that genuine love and camaraderie and cooperation that we had at that moment when that happened um, and sympathies that we had from our friends all over the world and how we chose to, to spend that capital on, on the bullshit that we chose to spend on Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, it's just, and that is really was the turning point, it seems to me. In yeah, terms it, of dysfunction. I, yeah, for sure. And I, I think that what's missing is is um kind of feasible and and you know, engaging feasible ways for people to engage that that will make any kind of a difference. It it you know it, and but it's funny because when you see what's the, the the reactions and the kind of strategies that are deployed to deal with this kind of problem that that you know a, a cataclysmic problem like a pandemic and suddenly you've got somebody like uh jared kushner speaking on you know as to what should be done with a gigantic superpower country um why not have you know every little weirdo uh artistic you know thinker coming up with ideas for what should happen, how things could work. You know, I think, I think sometimes that we all get defeated by our own cynicism that nothing we have to say or think really means anything, you know, or, or, or that it won't, how could you possibly, can you hear those messages? People are fucking sending me messages and can you hear that? No, I can't hear them. No, oh, good. <laughs> um, you know, so, so I, I just think that, uh, perhaps there, there, there needs to be a bit more, uh, kind of a, a general sense of, of hope, but paired with activity that uh, is original in, in its, you I know. know. I, think, I think what you're what you're getting to is this idea of increased sort of civic engagement, particularly on the local level. And, I, and you're really seeing that, you know, uh, you know, basically conservatives in the U.S. have been doing that for 30 years, and they've been very, very effective at it. Yeah. In terms of organizing, in terms of these long and looking at at things in terms of the long game, yeah. and you're seeing the fruits of that now on the Supreme Court, uh, on a lot of the different uh, uh, policies uh, related to a number of different issues on, in uh, in different states, and the Democrats were a, a lot were not as organized and were thinking more about or progressives, if you will, more about um, I think you know as long as we have a president that we like, then that's enough. And it's not. Um, and so I, I, this actually predates this pandemic, but I've been quite hopeful about the increased sort of involvement on a local level of people in the sort of, in, in the sort of civic discourse, because that's really where things happen. Whether you're talking about housing issues, it doesn't happen at the federal level. I mean, part of it happens at the federal level, but where the real decisions that are made that actually directly affect communities uh, is 
that happens at local levels yeah. wherever you are in the country and what about what, rural area. what do you think yeah, you know so i'm hopeful about that what do you think for like people like like yourself you know you you i know you you take photographs and you you, you work up with uh you, you know with your wife on all the the clothing and everything and um mm. uh and uh, she's obviously a designer involved in in creative pursuits you know uh what do you mm -hmm. think what can creative people do that that's always my question because that's because that's what I am and and I and I often think to myself yeah but none of the, none of your dumb ideas matter or or you know it's not gonna make a difference it all make make someone laugh or something but how do you how can you actually have some part of you know a meaningful change I don't know man I mean I think I think uh... <laughs> come on I want an answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think keep doing, doing what you do, man. Keep doing what you do. Don't let, you know, I think, I think creating the, and doing beautiful things and making yeah. interesting things. I mean, art has its own, sometimes things are, sometimes changes, you know, in, you know, things that we do have a direct uh, effect on people or on policy. And sometimes they just, you know, they can have, they're just beautiful things. And that, that seeing, putting more beauty into the world, putting more comedy into the world can have its own, ha has its own positive effects as well. Right. So and you, you just can never have really to exactly find your say, lane. Yeah. Yeah. You never it, can exactly say you have to find your lane the, where you have a, your voice and you feel that you're at your most authentic and then, and sort of as long as you're, you, you, you are, you know, engaged and saying what you want to say. I don't think that there's a right or wrong way to do that. Yeah, it's just in the face of the military-industrial uh, complex. <laughs> Sometimes you know they can get a little. It's like they don't have to think about like their their sort of uh, secondary or tertiary effects of their you know of their poetry. It's like they have you know they they got somebody to buy uh, uh, you know ten thousand tanks from their buddy, and and what are they going to be used for to blow shit up because because everybody's going to make money. You know, right. so when you right. see that kind of stuff, but I suppose, I suppose that, that one, you know, I mean, with art and what you, you can critique those things, you can, you can parody it, you can expose it. Um, you know, uh, I just, I do get I, somehow because I'm, I, I veer towards, you know, making movies or TV shows or, or stuff like that. Um, narrative things I, I and I see the uh, the extent to which people are like completely zombified by Netflix like especially now like yeah. in, the, in with the with the uh, coronavirus every, everybody's just inside like watching series and yeah and exactly. and I just think like it's really kind of a brain pause because it, it so much so much stuff that you do on your phone or your computer that doesn't have to do with work uh, or you know human connection is like escapism basically absolutely i mean I, I i think we're lucky in this sense i mean um and we're all guilty of it i mean my wife and i are too right we we you know you just sometimes you just want to veg out and escape and not have to deal with things um but i think this is also has i've been talking to so many different friends from all throughout my life and different parts of my life uh, over these past few weeks and family on a much more regular basis than I normally would. Yeah. So I think that that's a great, a great outcome from this as well. I agree. Uh, that's, and that's, that's really kind of an underlying, it, it shows something like it's partially it's fear, I think, you know, like, uh, sure. But checking but, in on people, but 
it's also partially just people, it's not borrowing, sort of using that as an excuse, like, oh, how are you doing, to reach out to people that you not you would not normally, uh, uh, you know, call, you know, you wouldn't speak to regularly. I mean, you, you and I are a good example of that, right? I mean, we speak, sure. what, once every couple of years? Yeah. At most. And now so we're in touch. Was, now we're in touch, man. We're making podcasts, baby. For dinner last night. I know what you cooked for dinner last night. What did I cook for dinner? Oh, what last your wife cooked. Yeah. What your wife cooked for dinner. <laughs> I don't want to pull your cards on on national podcast. Radio. The international. Uh, international. No, it's okay. My wife cooks. Radio. My wife cooks most of the meals. It's uh, my my cooking productivity has gone way down. Uh, it makes me feel impotent. I'm not yet impotent, but it 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 contributes to that general feeling, and I don't want to end up. You know, I I heard Mark Marin, who I've been listening to way too much lately, which got me inspired to do this, uh, was saying like at one point you got to sit down with your dad and say, uh, "I'm becoming you. How can we stop this from happening?" <laughs> Is that well? I had a, a different sort of upbringing where my dad was like super, he was the super chef, man. He's a, he's a, uh, I always love cooking. I, I hate those he's guys. He's a doer. Yeah, I got a friend I like that. He's always just like, yeah, and then I take my motorcycle and I go buy like the best, you know, meat or the fish for the, and then I fry it up. And then, and I'm just like looking at him and I'm just thinking. <sighs> but yo, I'm telling you, this is something that you're talking about Netflix and vegging out. This is one of the things that's not like, you know, all these people talking about you need to pick up a new hobby or a new skill or something like that. A lot of that is just putting unnecessary, you know, anxiety and pressure, adding another element of anxiety into our lives, right? Where something we, that we we're don't all need more anxiety. Sorry. We definitely don't need any more of that. But what is giving us pleasure is eating, right? Uh, and, <laughs> and, and so why not use that angst? to get back your ass in the kitchen and go get some fish and get the best fish and get the best piece of meat and grill it up for your 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 partner in crime. Yeah. All right, listen, man, I think we should leave it there because actually it's lunchtime here and my wife's been messaging me, uh, when am I coming home? Because now, of course, we eat all things together. Uh, so, because uh, How the... is she doing? How's she How doing? How is she doing? Is she freaking out? Yeah. No, no, no. She's fine. Um, now she's, yeah. Uh, hey, listen, that's that. We'll, we'll leave that for another. We'll talk about our wives next okay. time and their mental states, okay. but sure. she's fine. She's fine. No, both, both her and my daughter are fine. My daughter is uh, really becoming a teenager in the last few days. It's, it's, uh, she's about to turn 13 really? in June. And I think that this, like the, the confinement has done something. She's really sudden. Hormones? Yeah, she's really hurtling towards teenager dumb and just sort of almost every answer is turning into a sarcastic dismissal. <laughs> so, Good luck. Yeah, it's getting starting to like, oh, look at this. So it demands a, a, a higher level of um, Zen mysticism from me. I can imagine, but you're still going into your office. You're still like walking. Out I of am. House yeah, day? yeah. It's it's like it's it's five blocks away from my house. There's nobody here. I I interact with no one. I wear gloves. I have a mask. I, I I. It's maybe a little selfish, but I don't think it makes any difference. And to be honest, I can't do the work that I do from from home really. So, uh, when I am, what's working. the situation in Paris like right now? 
Uh, oh, so, so, um, yeah, so, well, today, uh, the big news is you they've outlawed jogging, uh, except in the morning and the, and at night. So basically from 10, from 10 in the morning till seven, you're, you're not allowed to jog anymore, period, which I think is kind of something to reflect upon. <laughs> it is. Well, those joggers are assholes. They did it to themselves. That's what I think. That is also They're true. Always bumping into people. They are always, even before all this, jogging really. Invading could, your, but but invading your space. But with this, when because you know, already here for since the, since this all started two weeks ago or more, I gotta find the days, um, count the days. We we you know you ha you can't go outside without a paper here. You have to justify what you're doing, and and if it's for exercise, really? you can't be there for more than an hour. It's you have to write the time you left on it and they're really? out ticketing people 135 euros yeah oh snap yeah yeah that's crazy yeah so you have to have this paper with you which a friend of mine referred to as a like a like a bathroom pass in, in, in yeah, junior sure. high school and um and so now it's they've extended it to jogging which on you know at the same time is sort of like the only thing that a lot of people know how to do that makes them feel wait, good who, who fills out this pass? so you fill out your own pass yeah i have i i'm doing it semi-legally like i just have the same piece of paper and i cross out the date and the time and i put a new one and when i come to my office it's there's like a, it, this is a french thing you know it's a, it shows the national characteristic it's like all right there's a big problem it needs some some we need to figure out how to solve it all right, somebody print 15,000 forms. Right. Let's That's get some French. layers of administration on this thing. <laughs> this is Napoleonic bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is yes. a French word, my yes. friend. <laughs> okay, yes. but. Yeah. There's some Vietnam. Uh, learned a lot from French. In that yeah, display. that's right. You, you, yes, you put together some communist China and, and uh, yes. uh, imperialist yes. France. You got Vietnam. Yes. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So it all comes full circle. All right, listen, I got to go. This was wonderful okay. to talk to you. Thank you for doing this. You too, my friend. You and too. We'll, we'll, well, by the way, we'll, Joey. Yeah. Joey, Joey, Joey. I, I played your, your album for my son. He loved it. And my wife. She loved it too. So it was really funky. The what? The, what? the, the, the music. The, the hip hop thing? The music. No. Oh, was my, it hip, would sorry. you call it hip hop? <laughs> No, your album. <laughs> oh my! Uh, yeah, yeah, the about? demos, the demos. Okay, cool. The demos, yeah. All right, yeah. Well, well, love it. Yeah, well, the guy who's producing that, he'll be the, he'll be one of the next guests on this on this thing, and then so okay, when cool. I come out as a major artist, um, Kilomet One Hundred Nine has to uh, has to give me clothes. Oh no doubt, yo! I was thinking we for the next project that you have, forget about whether it's you or it's. Another music video or something interesting that you're doing, like something that will be, you know, cool that has a chance to be <laughs> seen by a few people. Definitely, uh, uh, definitely answer me. Okay. We, we could definitely do a collaboration. Cool. Okay. All right, Benji, it's great to talk to you. All right, my friend. Let's do this again have, soon. Have a wonderful day. You, you too. too. Bye. So that was really great talking with uh, with Benji, with Ben. Uh, I'm really impressed by what he's doing with his fashion brand. I hope you'll check it out at www.kilomet109.com. Uh, uh, link will be in the description somewhere. Uh, perhaps to some of the other things that we talked about, so you can check some other relevant information out on, uh, about those things. Um, 
and uh, you know they're, they're gonna do this uh, fairly often uh, hopefully a couple of times a week uh, and you know just in so I'll probably be talking to somebody in in the Czech Republic in New York I uh, hope to be talking to my friend um, Radek in in Prague you know who's laughing about French people not wanting to wear their underwear on their face uh, or uh, my friend Steven who, who drives uh, the subway trains in uh, New York City uh, he wasn't feeling so well, had, had some, uh, some um, symptoms, and I hope he's, uh, hope he's doing much better now. Uh, and hopefully we'll be talking soon, because the point of this is to reach out to friends, figure out shit for the future, and have some fun at the same time, and stay inspired and not depressed. Check out uh, Chris Rock's uh, Good Hair and Mike Myers' uh, Supermensch. They're both uh, documentaries that are really unusual that I don't think, if you haven't seen them, you'll probably be surprised by what you find these two guys have decided to do with their time. Okay, thanks a lot. This has been Friends from the Future. Is that the name of this thing? Uh, Friends from the Future, yeah. And uh, talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Out of the hospital into the weather, my girl looked good, I didn't know what to tell her. The doctors, they told me it's just for one day, and then I'd see it all slipping away. Throw it up, falling down, turn green, then skip down. The shade, are you okay? You don't look so good, Shady. Shady, I'm gonna take care of you.